Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Emily McGuire, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Um, Emily and I actually do Pilates together. <laughs> Which is the most inner west thing. That yeah, it sense. is. But we probably do more talking and laughing than we do Pilates, don't we? Yeah. Um, Emily, outside of uh, doing Pilates, is an author of five novels and three non-fiction novels. So that's eight all up. Her novel, An Isolated Incident, was shortlisted for the Stella Prize, the Ned Kelly Prize, the Arbia Literary Fiction Book of the Year and the Miles Franklin Literary Award. Emily has written many articles and essays specifically talking about sex, feminism, culture and literature. These articles have been published widely, including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian, The Observer and The Age. We're not writing and we're not doing Pilates. Emily works as a teacher and as a mentor to young and emerging writers. In 2007, she was awarded the Edna Ryan Award for her work writing about women's issues and in 2018 was awarded the Charles Perkins Centre Writer in Residence Fellowship from the University of Sydney. Her book, This Is What a Feminist Looks Like, The Rise and Rise of Australian Feminism, was released in October and tells the stories of feminists throughout Australian history, those women who stood up and fought for the rights we now take for granted. Do you know, I was having breakfast with a friend of mine this morning because um, I've got a house full of people mm-hmm. and I was telling him I was coming to talk to you about feminism and he and I were talking about how for some people it still has a negative connotation, that word. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Why is that? Well, I think one of the things is that it's a movement um, that has been able to be characterised by its enemies or the people who don't like it. Um, so it is a movement in which people, it, it, you know, when I talk to people, particularly young people who say they're not feminists or they hate feminists or feminism is a cancer, which is something that's cool oh, for wow, young people, <laughs> for young yeah. schoolboys to say these days. Yeah. Um, and I'll ask, oh, okay, what about it? And the things I'll say are things that actually don't have any anything in common with the feminists I know or the movement that I know. So it is one of those words that it does seem to be being defined more by the people who hate it than those who actually are part of the movement themselves. Yeah. Um, and those, I mean, and this is something else we talked about this morning with, with my friend Bernard, is that all women should be feminist. Well, I think, I think so. There's some caveats to that. But it, I mean, I, I think there are things, and I sort of go into this in the book, that whatever's been the predominant strain of feminism at any one time has sometimes really left some women out. Um, For example, if we look at the first wave and the suffrage movement, which was really so much about getting votes for women, which is just world-changingly important, it did leave out all non-white women. And so I'm not going to go and say, well, (laughs) those women should call themselves feminists, even though the movement was doing nothing for them. Um, So in, in that sense, I really understand there are some women who don't. But I don't think that's what you're talking about necessarily in the conversation when women who actually have been given a much, much better life and privilege because of feminism don't want to identify with it because, you know, it makes them, I think, think people will think they hate men or they're it's unfeminine the word, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, because once you go beyond the actual word, mm. they do agree with 
Absolutely. Everything that feminism is. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. And do you think historically that word, was it because it was really a word given to women disruptors? Is that the negative connotation, do you think? Yeah, I think so. What's really interesting is looking back through history and the way that the anti-feminist kind of conversation hasn't changed much. Like you can go back over 100 years and the cartoons in the newspapers of the women who were trying to get the vote were that they're unfeminine, angry, man-hating, really suspect in some way. And that really hasn't changed at all, even though the things those women were fighting for are, as you said, completely mainstream now. Like it would be very hard to find, you know, you'd be going very, very far fringes to find someone who thinks women shouldn't be allowed to vote. Yeah. And yet the ideas attached to women fighting for that moved on then (laughs) to the feminists of each era, um, which is a really interesting phenomenon. And even now, I, you know, I've been publicising this book and talking about it and I'll be interviewed, um, you know, by usually an, a middle-aged or older man and he'll sort of say, oh, it was really fascinating reading this because all these earlier feminists, you know, they really had a strong cause. And then they'll go on to say, but now there's not that much to worry about. Really? And it's just to me, it's kind of like that's always been every step of the way there's been people saying well you know what you ladies have it pretty good yeah (laughs) you know I can see in the past that you would have fought but now now it's better yeah well now um now that we still don't get equal pay now equal pay that you know you know one Australian woman is murdered every week yeah um that's something that I saw Louisa Lawson writing about well over 100 years ago about you know she wrote something like you'd need the biggest building in Sydney and it still wouldn't fit all the women and children fleeing violence in their own homes Um, And, of course, things have got better in that way. We talk about it now. You know, in the 70s, um, Anne Summers pointed out we didn't even have the term domestic violence. Um, So things have obviously got better in terms of awareness and talking about it. But we still don't have enough buildings in Sydney to, you know, that would actually fill with people fleeing that violence. And and until, you know, women literally don't have safety in their own homes, um, it's hard to argue that the fight's over. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think it's it's not over by far. Um, Tell me, um, firstly, um, how did you come to write this book? Yeah, um, it's quite interesting for me because it's um, fiction is my love mm-hmm. and if it was up to me, I would just write and read fiction all the time. So the three non-fiction books I've done have all been because I've felt really agitated about something or, um, well, firstly, the first two were. Um, with this one, I was actually approached by the National Library of Australia about having a look into their archives because they have this incredible collection of women's history and documents um, and they asked me if I would look at that and maybe bring some of those stories to the front to, to publicise them. And I think we were talking about a fairly short book when that started, but once I got in there, um, I was just so fascinated and, we, yeah, we decided to do this uh, full book that tries to obviously not cover every moment in, in history uh, of women's rights, but a lot more. Um, I just really realised I know a lot about where we're at and what needs to be done, but I, I knew actually very little about the feminist history of Australia. Mm, and where it came from. Yeah, yeah, some of the things I thought I knew were actually wrong or they were from the American or the British movements, which yeah. I think we hear about a lot more. Um, and there were so many great stories and, and so many great women and leaders and activists in this movement whose names I didn't know. Mm. Um, and it felt really important to tell those stories in a sort of accessible way so that people could start, you know, referencing Louisa Lawson or Pearl Gibbs the way they do Don Bradman or Farlap, you know. Mm. Um, it's, in, it's been interesting for me too because I felt the same way with reading your book. But you know what I liked about it is that it's not a textbook either. 
No, it's no. great storytelling. I, it's, it's, yeah. it's the stories of these yeah. people, yeah. Yeah, it's really good storytelling. So how did you go about it? Like, did you approach it from, uh, it's in chronological order, is that right? Is that... Um, it's in it's kind themed of chapters yes. and each of them is in chronological order. So I looked yeah. at sort of these broad themes of politics, the mm. workplace, the home, the body um, yeah. and then public life. Yeah. And within each of those sort of the movement from it's it's obviously it's post-colonisation history. I, I can't write the history of all the incredible strong women leaders before that, but we should all know them too. Um, but really moving from talking about, so sort of for each area I, I wanted to look at, how things were. In other words, what made these women actually stand up against the mores of their time and make change? Like, what was it driving them? Um, and then how did they do that? Mm. And then end each chapter with, well, okay, where are we now? Mm. I want to talk about the uh, chapter on politics. And I know that you talked about Julia Gillard. And I want to talk about that because I really was so astounded at the treatment that she got yeah. and how accepted and how acceptable it was. I was more astounded at how acceptable it was even for the media Mm -hmm. and even our female journalists. Mm -hmm. And when she made that misogyny speech, really that news only came to us via the UK or the US. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I think um, I think actually a lot of people I've talked to had your reaction too. I think that was shocking to a lot of women. I remember at the time having a lot of conversations um, about about that and about how it struck so many of us sitting privately at our computers or at home compared to how it was being reported. Mm -hmm. It's being reported in this really cynical way, um, which I get, that's what political reporters do. But really, the female reporters, they just completely ignored it. It really wasn't until Anne Summers started talking about it. Yeah. And, you know, I spoke to Anne on this podcast uh, last year, I think. I always thought they were friends. She did not know Julia Gillard when she started to write about what was happening to her. They had not no, met. No. no. And that, I mean, I, I, that doesn't surprise me in the sense that I think the, the the real feminist leaders and activists and heroines who keep the movement going, um, what they're specifically doing is not just fighting for themselves or their friends. I mean, that is the only way feminism works is if we fight for people who we don't know and we're never going to know and we're never going to be in this situation. The thing I say about someone like Julia Gillard, you don't have to like her politics. You don't have to feel like you're defending her. Like, she's tough. She can, you know, she's in that position. But what so many of us saw is, well, every situation we've ever been in in the workplace where we're being degraded or undermined um, because of our femaleness. And I think a lot of us also saw, you know, for our daughters or nieces or younger sisters or kids in school that we want more girls to go into politics and yet what they're seeing is what happens to a woman who goes into politics. For me, a big thing about defending Julia Gillard and really pointing out the truth in what she was saying in that speech was pointing out what all this treatment was really telling girls, you do not belong here. Yeah. You are going to be mercilessly mocked and... Um, mercilessly. Mercilessly mocked and in the most degrading, sexualised ways. Like, of course, politics is tough and they throw insults around, but... It was These weren't about that. her policies or her behaviour in any way. They were about her actual physical femaleness and female body. Well, remember when they made reference when some, some journalists went over there and she was, apparently didn't have fruit in the fruit bowl? Yes. As if we would ever, ever make a comment about a male journalist. No, and that became a, a, a symbol of her, you know, yeah. in, in Heffernan's words, her, her deliberate barrenness. You know, she's yeah. deliberately barren and... Um, 
And I that's remember something... reading that and being so outraged yeah. that you, you know, that somebody could make that observation and write about it and think that it's not entirely sexist. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it was really interesting looking back over the history of women in politics. Of course, you know, we, we're quite rightly proud in this country and probably should be more so of the fact that women or at least white women got the vote pretty much before anyone else in the world yes. except for New Zealand. That's incredible. Um, but then it was the gap between when women could run for office and when a woman actually got into office was actually 41 years, which is the longest in the world. Yeah, wow. It took that long to get a woman elected. Um which was uh, Edith Cowan in West Australia. And then a, a few more years after that, before we had anyone in federal politics, Enid Lyons um, was the first in federal politics or in the House of Representatives. She came from a real political legacy. Her husband had, her late husband had been prime minister. She was older. She had raised, had and raised her 12 children. So no one Twelve. could accuse her of being barren deliberately yeah. or otherwise. And she really, you know, if you look at her first speeches, she really lent in to to that. She described herself as a new broom in the house and sort of took on this mothering role, like she was going to clean it all up and make them better, which now, you know, of course, makes you grit your teeth. But you really, she understood, and she said this in a later biography, I think, or an interview, that, that to not do that would have been fatal. If she tried to not draw attention to her femaleness, everyone else was going to do it anyway. And she, so she tried to make it a strength in this way, that she had raised children, that she was a mother, that she knew how to tidy things up and have great yeah. morals. And, you know, in some way that's never gone away, yeah. that I think female politicians are being treated as if they're supposed to be everyone's mother, for yeah. better or worse. Yeah. So they're meant to behave better, they're meant to be more nurturing. They're usually, when they are given portfolios on their way up, it's things that are considered feminine, like um, education... Mm-hmm. Healthcare, um, incredibly important portfolios, but feminised ones. Mm. Um, and then when they don't do that, like Julia Gillard and to an extent Julie Bishop, there is a suspicion about them because mm. they're not motherly enough. Mm. Yeah, and when they, you know, are angry or when they are emotional, it's because they're female. It's not yeah. has nothing to do with their work. I really feel because um, you know how long was how long ago were we talking about with Julia Gillard? I mean, it's so recent, isn't it? Yeah. Five years? Um, I can't remember. I'm trying to think now. Anyway, but it so, is yeah. recent. And I feel sometimes it just still makes me angry. I follow her on Instagram, but I feel that the country owes her an apology. I really do with the way that we treated her. But anyway, let's move on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On. The next subject in your book, work, um, mm. which I think is still so contentious. Mm-hmm. I look at 
say that teachers, teaching mm. and that workforce, and I've, uh, and these numbers aren't accurate, but they're just from obs- observation, let's say it's 90% female, mm-hmm. yet the management is 90% male. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I don't know the exact figures no. either, but that, that That's certainly would be, <laughs> would be close. Um, and there's, there's quite a few industries like that too, of course. Like Nurses. Publishing. <laughs> publishing, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. yeah. Um, and yes, nursing is, is another area. And in fact, a lot of the social services type of, again, mm. these sort of feminised professions, um, that the, the management level is often skews towards male compared to the rest of the workforce. Mm. And talk to me about that. Well, I think what, what's interesting is to look at when, you know, we talk about when women started coming into the workforce is actually that's one of the things I really realised is a is a nonsense in a way because women have always, always been part worked. of the... And that's not just working at home, which is a huge thing, which I talk about in a whole other chapter, um, but actually part of the labour force, part of the income earning force. Women have always done that. Now, it was often in the early days of the Australia colonies, it was in the home, but it wasn't their own taking care of their own kids. It was bringing in laundry or washing or cleaning for other people, so-called mm. domestic service. Mm. It was also agricultural work. Um, as as the white colonists sort of spread out across the nation, women were vital to, mm. to all of that work, for better or worse. Um, and I actually came across this fact that in it was in the early 1880s, the Queensland statistician, actually the official Queensland statistician, actually made the decision to take all the women and girls' names out of the census for agricultural mm. workers. So in one actual sweep of the pen, 15,000 women and girls were taken off those records. Um, and then a similar thing happened in Victoria a few years later. Um so one of the arguments was, well, they're the daughters and wives of farmers. They're not farmers themselves. Um, so their work was discounted. And and someone else in there was also saying, well, we don't want the world to think that our women have to do this work, mm. even though none of this would have happened without all those women workers. So, you know, women's work has always been there, but it's been invisible because it's been in homes or it's been literally made invisible. It was only when women started getting factory jobs with industrialisation and you can see in all the newspapers all this panic, this absolute moral panic about women leaving the home to work. Because mm. who's going to support the male? Yeah, and, and also that it was going to somehow having them out there. And I, I really think, no one said this exactly, but I really feel it's this thing when people, patriarchy gets really nervous about women talking to each other. Mm. And to have all these women, and really quite young women, standing next to each other all day doing this factory work mm. and, and talking mm. and getting ideas and then going out after work for a meal or a drink. And having a life. Having yeah. a life, earning their own money, supporting themselves. There was a huge panic about that. There were several royal commissions um, and they were into the conditions of the factories, which is a great thing because sometimes the conditions were appalling and needed those changing. But one of them, they just had like I think there were 12 doctors who gave evidence, all men of course, about whether factory work um, ruined the moral health of women, not their physical health. Um, so it was this real obsession with women in the workplace. And, you know, we're talking about the 1880s here mm. um, when this conversation started. And, and if you find the voices of women in there occasionally in a newspaper letter or in the Royal Commissions, these quite young women, they were very capable of saying for themselves, we love this work. Yes, it's hard. We're earning our own money. Or people say, we have to support ourselves. Who, who, 
who does anyone think is supporting us or I'm supporting my elderly parents and all mm. the things we'd say now about why we work. Mm. It's satisfying. I like looking after myself and, of course, they were saying that then. Um, mm. I, um, I, it's interesting, you know, and when I was reading your book, I was thinking about my own mother, right, and, mm. and we're not going that far back, but she was an immigrant to the country. She had six children. My father worked in a factory. Um, but she raised, so she was working at home mm. and raising and putting down a fine meal every mm-hmm. single night. She, we had a corner shop and she was sewing glow mesh purses. Mm. Yeah. She would never have been counted in any statistics. No, no one is talking about all oh, these mm. career women these days or something mm. that people try and say now. But but there's never been a really a situation in which most women haven't worked and, mm. and certainly working class women, immigrant women have worked probably more mm. and harder or less, you know, um, with less reward. But always women at just about every level until we get to the very upper class have, mm. have done some work to support their family and done that home stuff as well, as which well. is the big thing. Yeah. yeah, and I look at women today and, and women that, that are in, um, you know, um, barristers and solicitors and doctors and whatever. I mean, they're still working very hard, but they're still doing the home component. Yeah, which is really, I think Annabelle Crabb's written about this really well recently, is... is where the big need and gap is now for men to actually step up and take those home responsibilities on more mm. because, you know, there are only so many hours in a day and while it is still mostly women doing all the childcare and the housework, there is actually and a the limit cooking, yeah. and the cooking and all of that stuff that, you know, the literal stuff of life. Um, there, there is a limit at how far women can actually get in the workplace when they're the ones who are always called to pick a sick child up or, you know, whatever it is, um, the day-to-day stuff and the emergency stuff um, and, you know, there's a there's a breaking point there and we all know women or perhaps have been those women who mm. reach that breaking point because mm. there's just no more time and energy. Um, and, and so that is really something where it's, you know, it's fine to tell girls you can be anything and do anything and you just work hard and you'll get there. Um, but actually we need the fathers of these children and the, the men in our lives to, to really mm. step up and actually mm. they also can do everything. Mm. Talk to me about like boards, you know, when we're mm. looking at bigger organisations mm. and CEOs and it's still, it's very, very slow, isn't it? It is very slow and, and you know, I think in the public conversation that is probably more prominent than it is in my own thinking yeah. about this stuff because yeah. I, I do tend to have my own sort of interests and sympathies at a, at a more um, ground level yeah. of, of everyday women but it, it is definitely important. It's mm. important at every level to mm. have to have more women in um, decision-making capacity it really does make a big difference and there is definitely still a tendency at the top end of town um, to have one woman at the table as if that's enough Mm. and then that feeds into this whole idea too of of women needing to be kind of complicit with misogyny sometimes because you know they they if there's only one place for a woman and and you want to be that woman you you really don't have the the political or the professional room there um, to speak out against some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. What, what we actually need is a is a more even mix. Um, so it's not a case of you know when one woman or even if a woman stuffs up, which we do because we're human. If there's only one woman there, it's people say like they did with Julia Gillard. Mm-hmm. Well, we tried a woman. Look, mm. it doesn't work. Mm. Whereas yeah. literally every day men stuff up. <laughs> exactly. And no one says, well, we tried men. And they don't work. Yeah, that's right. It's just like that man didn't work. And, and that's the more women we get into these positions, the mm. more we'd actually see that. Do you know what makes me absolutely crazy mad is when they're talking, you know, like a lot of terms with that, and they'll say, you know, minorities like women, mm-hmm. uh, gay people, uh, whatever. And that by that very nature of that conversation insinuates that the male, white male, is the superior 
Yeah, is the norm. Yeah. The normal way to be, uh, that's human. Yeah. And then there's these other subcategories of special interests. everybody else outside of the white male yeah. is a minority. Yeah. That drives me crazy when I hear that. I want to talk about equal pay because I feel that that's something, again, that women are so frightened to bring up mm. because you could lose your job. Mm-hmm. And, again, it is seen as you know, women being difficult, women being erratic, women being emotional, whatever. What women being you... demanding. Demanding. <laughs> demanding. Mm-hmm. Um, Nagging, whatever. Yeah. All those derogatory terms, it's awful. I mean, again, this is something that I was so surprised and confounded mm. at how long this debate's mm. been going on. Mm. Like, really from the earliest days um, with women working in industrial settings anyway, where they weren't getting paid the same and they would kind of want to know why when they why? were doing the same work. And, exactly. And there were actual, you know, political and um, corporate decisions about that, which is, you know, this idea that women work for pin money, as they said. Mm. You know, women work as a, as a hobby or to have a little bit extra. And, and the wage is set for a man to be able to support his wife and two children. That's mm. it. That's what a, a fair wage is. And it's taken a long time to get over that thinking um, and some still maybe haven't. Um, but, you know, that, that audacity, it feels like you, you are being audacious to even bring it up. And I really love this woman who I didn't know about before researching this book, Muriel Higney, um, who was a unionist and a great fair pay campaigner um, across the board. She actually brought a book out at the height of the Depression or just after um, called Are Women Taking Men's Jobs? which I always say, spoiler alert, no, <laughs> you don't need to read the book. Um, but she was, you know, considered incredibly audacious because this was a time when actually a lot of people were out of work. And so a lot of people were saying, why are these women staying in these jobs when all these men are out of work? Because the assumption was these jobs are men's jobs. Women just filled in for them mm. while they're at war um, and now they should get out of them. Mm. And Muriel Higney not only said, well, no, they're just, they're just jobs. They're not men's jobs or women's jobs, they're jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone who can do the job has a right to it and it's mm-hmm. a problem that we have high unemployment. It's not a problem of women. But she also was arguing for equal pay at a time when a lot of people were saying women shouldn't be working at all. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of attitude that I think we all need to tap into more now and not be apologetic about, like, this is just a really basic thing. This mm-hmm. isn't being demanding at all. This, mm-hmm. is, this is fair work for fair pay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, it, I'm, I'm blown away that we're still having that conversation yeah. in 2019. Yeah, I know. Um, I just want to touch on this um, little video I saw, Jan Fran. I, I yes. just love her. Do yeah, you love yeah, her? she's fantastic. Oh, she's so great. And she did this little piece called Merit Man. I don't know if you, you know, because she yes. writes her own skit. It's fantastic. Yes. But one of the things she pulls up is a cartoon and she has two people racing, one woman and one man, and in front of, it's not her cartoon, she's, it's something she found. And in front of the woman, there's a washing machine, there's babies, there's a <laughs> yeah. sink, there's, you know... Um, and then he's got a clear path the whole way and mm-hmm. it's like ready, set, go. Mm-hmm. And so at the onset you're already laden with all this responsibility, you know, and then you're meant to do everything else. But she talks about male privilege in terms of that white male privilege of they think they get everywhere on merit, that yes. they've worked hard, you know, because we haven't, mm-hmm. that they've worked hard and, you know, they've gone to university and they've studied and, of course, they're entitled to it and that, drives me crazy because I've seen it myself that it's open doors. They go to a particular school, a particular... I mean, she had a look at, um, I think it was judges in Australia and Mm. a high percentage of them went to the one school in Sydney. 
Yeah. That's jobs for the boys. It absolutely is. And it's one of those things I always think when people talk negatively about affirmative action or quotas. Mm. We have had affirmative action for centuries, millennia actually. We've had this affirmative action which is basically people who have power giving jobs to people they already know who are in their social circle. Um, And so even, you know, I, I... I don't think that all of these people in power are deliberately saying, I only want a white private educated boy for this job. Um, some of them I'm sure are, but but I don't think that's necessarily what's happening. No. But it is, most of us look at the circle around us when we're thinking of someone for something, that's to right. do something. And if you only have that line of vision of people who are exactly like you, grew mm. up with you, went to the same school, you play golf with their dads, um, that is where that is coming from. And and so much about affirmative action or deliberate diversity and things like that is like literally just open your worldview wider and see who else is out there. And, and there's actually studies on this now. I think Sweden is the big study of how quality improves and merit improves when you force diversity. Because if you think about it, if you just think you've got to hire someone for a job and you only think of the people you know, okay, there's probably people there who would do a good job. If you're forced to actually put that scope out wider Mm. and interview 200 people from all different backgrounds, there's people out there you don't know about, you've never heard of, and they're probably brilliant. Mm. And as soon as you force hiring people or people in positions of power to just do that, to just go wider in their search, you actually will get the best person then, Mm. not the person who's just in front of you because of how they've been brought up and where. I heard, I went to some talk and I've forgotten what her title was at the time, Elizabeth Broderick. What was mm. her title? Um, she was... She was the Sex Discrimination Commissioner. Yeah, and she was talking about quotas with um, the CEO of Qantas, uh, Joyce, Alan Joyce, yes. actually. And that's what they were doing. And I remember walking away from that thinking it's probably the only way, you know, yeah. to affect change. Yeah. Is quotas. I want to talk, uh, talk about um, women and their bodies and mm. social media. mm Mm. Where have we come a long way? I sometimes worry about that. Mm. (laughs) Look, it's really hard. I think in some ways things are much, much worse than Mm. when I I was young. People are changing their appearance, you know, using all that anti-age stuff at a very early age now. Yeah, you see stuff that's, you Mm. know, you get preventative Botox, Mm. (laughs) um, things like that and and worse. And I think certainly, you know, I've I've often reflected and I'm not alone in this of women my age of that if we had cameras around all the time Mm. when we were, when we were teenagers, how much, how how terrible that would have been. Like Mm. I was, you know, I've I've written about this. I was extremely um, body image conscious and had huge, huge problems with body image until, you know, well into my adult life. Um, But the times I I remember not feeling that was hanging out with my friends often, like just my Mm. girlfriends and you'd hang out and and actually felt like I could be myself Mm. and invisible in a sense. And I think that is missing for a lot of young people now and young women and I think that's really sad to never have that sense of just comfort in your body that it's not on display. Mm. The the positive thing that can come is that there is also, if you follow the right accounts on Instagram, for example, there's a, a wonderful body positivity or even body neutrality movement, which I love body neutrality. Um, you don't have to have this extra pressure on you that you have to love your body, but just it's neutral. It does things mm. for you. It's healthy or it's not. It's working or it's not. Um, and it's not who you are. And there's actually fantastic... Um, influencers, for want of a better term, and and people really getting that message out, which, again, I wouldn't have had, had access to at that age. It was really lo- what was right in front of me in the suburbs of Sydney. So I think it's wonderful that young people and, and, and older people too can can connect with this wider range of views about what a beautiful body is or what a body is for. Um, but, you know, it's the internet. It's, it's the worst and the best of everything, mm, isn't it? it? It really is. Do you think... Um 
because sometimes I think we've come such a long way and then mm. I look at all this, you know, body shaping, body face changing and I feel that sometimes it has set us back in terms of modern terms um, because why are we doing it? Why are we changing the way we look? Why do we want to always want to be 20 when we're 40 or when we you know... When yeah, we're 60. What I is mean, that? There's there's a lot in there, and and patriarchy comes into it again. Mm. That the value of women is um, either as sexual objects or as um, as mothers, mm. and aging puts you out of both those categories according to um, mainstream views of beauty. Um, but that's also capitalism, which is another huge conversation that mm. I haven't written a book about. But but you know we, I am. Um, read The Beauty Myth when I was a teenager and it had a huge impact on me, not, by not huge enough, Wolf. by Naomi Wolf. It yeah. didn't, it didn't um, fix me, mm-hmm. but it, it certainly started me thinking about these things. And um, I had the privilege of interviewing her oh, probably oh, nearly wow. 10 years ago now, yeah. but it was on, I think, maybe the 20th anniversary of The Beauty Myth and talking to her about it. And, and she pointed out in one way what's become much worse, the things she pointed out, how there's these massive multi-million or billion-dollar companies that want me to feel um, like I am unacceptable mm. if I don't buy their products and put them on my face. And these billion-dollar companies depend on me feeling like I'm not enough. And that hasn't changed. And, in fact, that has got worse because she said capitalism is apolitical in that it will just grow to make more money and Regardless, do what it has to, right? Yeah, so it's not it even being anti-feminist because what the, so first they went younger, yeah. trying to get younger girls feeling like that. They've gone older. Yeah. So now you, know, you be 80 and you have to look sexy. Yeah. Um, and then they've, they've moved on to men as yeah. well. And actually a lot more boys have body image problems. And this is not the kind of equality we want, which is everyone no. being miserable and hating themselves. Um, so as long as we keep having this, um, these massive, massive industries that, you know, I think makeup can be fun. I wear oh, makeup. Sure. I think Absolutely. fashion can be fun. All that stuff, it can be great self-expression. But as long as a majority of women especially or people feel... I have to spend money on these products in order to be acceptable, in order to do a good job, in order to have someone love me. Um, you know, that that's... You know. mm. I, one of the terms I heard recently, apparently it's been around for a long time, but somehow I missed it. But somebody, one of my friends, my old friends, said, oh, yes, uh, and she looks like a yummy mummy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard that one. Have you heard that one? Yeah, yummy oh, mummy. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and then there's pressure on women as soon so as they... shocked. As soon as you've had the baby, that yeah. you're supposed to be getting back to yummy mummy status. And, yeah. Um, there's whole product lines marketed towards women who've just had babies yeah. um, to look like they haven't. Um, and it's just like what your body has just done <laughs> in literally making a human and bringing yeah. it into the world and that someone's telling you you're supposed to be... Yeah, and I wanted to say to him, yummy in terms of what? Your perception oh, of yeah. yummy? Yeah, I mean, what are we talking about yeah, here? Yeah, whose taste buds are yeah. you appealing to? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, Emily, I think times are. Great conversation. Um, what, are you, what are you working on? What are you writing? Um, I what a, are you doing next? A novel. A novel. Yes, yes. that is, is getting there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think that'll be the next thing that's out in the world will be a novel. Fabulous. We yeah. can't wait. Thank you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. 
We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.